0: Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to pick up in our study in the book of Matthew. We've been in the the book of Matthew for like a year and a half, and specifically today we're going to be looking at this story, this awesome passage, like this section of scripture that even if you did not grow up in the church, you've probably heard something about this passage, the feeding of the 5,000. But I want to dig a little bit further into this passage this morning and just challenge us um, with some Aspects of this passage, and so um, let's read it: Matthew fourteen thirteen to twenty one, and then let's pray, and we'll dive in. It says this: Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, uh, God, that we can even come here from just the chaos of our lives and everything going on, that we could come here this morning into your presence, that we can worship you, I thank you, God, that we can count on it, that your word will accomplish the work that you intended for it to do. If we would just be a people that would come here this morning with open hearts and open minds to hear what it is you have for us, and so we give you this time, Jesus. We pray that um, not only would this time be a blessing to our lives, but our time here would be a blessing to you, Jesus. So, uh, may your hand be upon this time, and your spirit move as you wish, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, If you've been around here for the last year, year and a half, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, one of the things that we've talked about a lot is signs. We've talked a lot about miracles, as we see Jesus doing these miracles and and these signs. And if I took a poll of this room this morning, and I maybe asked you this question, what do you consider the greatest sign that Jesus did? Like, what was the greatest, most spectacular sign that he did? I think the majority of us would probably say his resurrection, that Jesus' resurrection is the greatest miracle and proof of Jesus as the Messiah, as our Savior. And so I think that's an awesome answer. I agree with you. And Paul pretty much says this in Romans chapter one, he said, verse four, he says that the resurrection of Jesus demonstrated that he was the Messiah, that he was the very son of God. But what about prior to the resurrection? So prior, we say this a lot, like oftentimes we're reading a passage, what we don't understand is, the disciples have no context as to what's gonna happen. Jesus' life is death and resurrection, what's ahead. We sort of read this book on the other side of things 2,000 years later, knowing not only what happens with Jesus' life is death and his resurrection, but we also know the, the, the end from the beginning, that Jesus is coming back for his church. And so they have no perspective like this. And so um, what, what about prior to the resurrection? What was the greatest sign that Jesus did the greatest miracle that he did and you've got a bunch to choose from right you've got healings that Jesus has done that we've talked about we've got people being raised from the dead Jesus commanding the wind and the seas um, and having authority over nature uh, next week we'll talk about Jesus walking on water and I'll even practice it for you we're gonna have this pool I'm just gonna be like yeah let's do this and uh, take my first step There's a ton of miracles, like there's a ton of signs. Which one are we going to select as the greatest sign that Jesus has ever performed? But if you go like do some research and you kind of see where theologians land on this topic, most theologians would say that this is probably the greatest sign pre-resurrection that Jesus ever performed, the greatest miracle Jesus ever did, the feeding of the five thousand. Um, because at that time, for the people who were present for this miracle, who literally saw it with their own eyeballs, they would have said that this really demonstrated that Jesus was the Messiah. There was, there was more to this whole thing. And what many of this, these theologians use to support this idea is really the, the scope of the miracle, because some would suggest, like this says 5,000 men besides women and and children. And so some would say on the upper end of like 25,000 people could be present here for this. So when we read the heading, like feeding the 5,000, it was way more than 5,000. So maybe some would speculate 25,000, 10,000, 15,000, whatever it is, it's far more than the 5,000 that we read in the heading. So there's a lot of people here. The scope of this miracle is huge. A ton of people are present and they're not just watching this miracle. The amazing part about this is that they're actually partaking in this miracle. They're actually eating from the miracle that Jesus is providing for them. So it's not just an innocent bystander watching a dude get healed that you know, really didn't get to experience it themselves. You're talking about 15 to 20,000 people that are actually tasting it, that are seeing it, witnessing it, watching this before their very eyes. And so from a scope and size standpoint, this is a major messianic sign. But there's more because there was also something produced from this miracle. It wasn't just about the miracle itself, it was also, there's depth in what it was that Jesus was providing from this miracle, this abundance of food. And he provides this easily, like it just happens. And I think we have a harder time appreciating that, that aspect of this miracle, to be honest. We often read the Bible as sort of um, a, a fictitious story, like a fairy tale, we read it like a children's book. If you grew up in the church, you know the story. It's been told to you time and time again. Sometimes we need that refresher, but we have a hard time appreciating what's actually taking place in this story because we don't necessarily remember a time when Costco didn't exist, do we? Anybody? Like, some of you remember that day. Uh-huh. But there was a day in time when Costco did not exist, right? There was a day in time where we didn't need more boxes, where people didn't need storage units or to have garage sales, like a time where people didn't just pile up stuff. But that has become the normal in our current culture. Like we just, who doesn't have like an extra room with a bunch of boxes in it, a room that they never go in, with a bunch of boxes in it that they've never looked in or it's been 10 or 20 years since you've looked in. It's just like, We have an abundance of lots of things. Or who here today has like two refrigerators in their house and a freezer out in the garage, right? And you're just stacked with food. Like there was a day in time when that was not the case. People didn't pile up, they didn't have an abundance of, they didn't stock uh, food for the future. There was a time when this wasn't a thing. Nowadays, the abundance of something has actually become the norm. And at this time when Jesus lived in first century, in first century Israel, most people actually gathered and prepared their food day of to make the food that day. It, there, there was, it was a time, a day and age when famine was actually a threat. Like there was, there was the possibility of famine. Um, and so when you have an event like this where it's sort of the shared common need and they get to be a part of this and watch it with their own eyes, and they see an abundance left over, they see that these leftovers sort of come easily, that they didn't have to work a lot, that they didn't have to prepare the leftovers, it actually would have stood out to them greatly. I think today we're like, oh, they have some leftover food? Cool, you know, but in reality, these people are going, where the heck did the leftover food come from? Why is there leftover food? Like, what is going on? Where, how did that happen? But there's something even more significant than this taking place. And that's that there's this connection to the past as well. So the, the people of God, this nation of Israel, they had always been looking ahead. They'd always been awaiting this long talked about Messiah. They were longing for a time where this promised Messiah that was written about in the Old Testament scriptures would actually come. They longed for that. They were waiting for him to show up. They longed for the day that the people of God would no longer be under the rule of the Romans, for the day when they would be redeemed, the day when they would be free. And they knew that that would only come through this promised Messiah. And so I want you to put yourself in their shoes at this event in this moment. This event has taken place. You know that there's this Messiah that was promised to come. And what you also know is that the one who's to come would have a ministry that would be marked by certain things. Like he would make himself known to the people. For example, they knew he would come sort of looking like Moses. That his ministry would be like Moses and and would remind people of the ministry of Moses and what what God did through Moses. In fact, Moses himself says in Deuteronomy 18, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. But then Moses isn't solo in this. In fact, there was a verse I read a couple weeks ago about a conversation between Philip and Nathaniel, two of the disciples. And they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. And Philip says to Nathaniel, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. This Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So all of a sudden there's this potential Messiah on the scene and so I want you to put yourself in the place of the crowd in Matthew 14. You've heard about this miracle worker, this guy that's healing, that's calming the sea, this guy that's raising the dead. You've heard about like his masterful teaching, like he has wisdom that nobody else has had. And it's kind of piqued your interest. If you're hanging around at this time and you're hearing about this guy, you're going, hmm, not like I just want to go see a healing, but like could this be the one? Could it be him? Could this be the Messiah that we've waited for? And so you want to see these things for yourself. You want to hear from him yourself. You want to observe him. You want to follow him, and so you do. And that one day you find yourself out in this desolate place. I want you to think about the wilderness experience for the Israelites following Moses, and there's no food. You find yourself in this desolate place, there's no food, but this man that you've been following, who's probably maybe a prophet, is feeding everyone out of seemingly nothing. Everybody's getting fed. Kind of like Moses did in the desolate place in the wilderness with manna from heaven, and so they're starting to make the connection. So what would you think? Like Maybe he's here, maybe this is him. Maybe our waiting time is over. Maybe redemption is now. Maybe salvation is here. Maybe we finally do have the Messiah that we've heard so much about and we've been waiting for. And so it is for reasons like this that the scope and the size and what was produced from this miracle, how it was linked to their past, that this is what leads people to say at this time, for those that were there pre-resurrection, that this was the sign. Could he be the one? And so with that in mind, I wanna unpack this passage a little bit and it's kinda, of, I'm gonna do this in a weird way because I'm gonna work backwards. Um, but I wanna highlight four things in this passage that we are not to see. Four things I don't want you to see, okay? That sounds kind of ironic. Four things I, I, I don't want you to see. So the first one is this. I want us, to, I want us not to see removal as the only option. Um, We don't always need to flee. So what do I mean by that? In verse 13, it says this. When Jesus heard this, what what is it that Jesus heard at this time? So last week we talked about John the Baptist beheading. right? Jesus heard about his cousin, John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, and when Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod, Jesus withdraws to this desolate place. He hears about it, he withdraws. and Jesus goes away to mourn. So Jesus takes off in this boat, but when the crowds catch wind that Jesus is taking off in the boat, what are the crowds doing? They're gonna haul, they're gonna hightail it around the, the Sea of Galilee to try to get to the place where Jesus is going so they can be waiting there when Jesus gets to the other side so they can experience the miracles of this man. And so here's the response of Jesus. He's fully human, he's fully divine, he's God, and he's mourning. Like, if that doesn't show the humanity of Jesus, I don't know what does. Like, it breaks his heart that his cousin has been killed. He's mourning. Jesus needs a little bit of alone time, and so he wants some time to get away from the crowds. How do you and I normally react when you want a little bit of alone time and somebody's intruding on your alone time? Is anybody stoked on that? (laughs) I don't know maybe you had a bad day at work, maybe you're literally driving home, you can't wait to get to the house, you can't wait to plop yourself down on the couch or go for a run or unwind or whatever it is, and all of a sudden you get home, you're already tired, you're bombarded by people, how is it that you react in that moment? If it was me, I'd be like, leave me alone. I've had a very hard day, I don't wanna talk about it. Like, go away, (laughs) leave me alone for a bit. Like, I just want some time to unwind. (laughs) some time to mourn myself. But that's not what happens here with Jesus. Instead, we read in verse 14 that when he went ashore, he sees a great crowd, and what does he do? It says, and he had compassion. That, that word compassion literally means that his heart went out to them. So he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus is trying to get away to mourn the loss of his cousin, has every right in this moment to be like, hey, leave me alone for a little bit. I'm trying to just unwind and get over the fact that my cousin's been beheaded and like take this all in. You guys are chasing me down. If it were you or I, we'd be like, get away and leave me alone. Jesus had compassion on them, and Jesus begins to heal the sick. In other accounts of the same event, we read that Jesus goes on and he teaches them. And so we don't know how long this goes on for, this healing and this teaching. We only know that at the end of the day, the disciples come to him in verse 15 with this ask. And if you look at verse 15, he says, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So what is the ask that they're making. Jesus, send the, send the crowds away. That's the ask. Send the crowds away. We have a problem, Jesus. It's getting late. There's massive crowds of people. They're all hungry. We have nothing to give them. We've got no food. It's an issue, so Jesus, tell them to go. And Jesus, like I want you to see this this morning. Jesus sees the crowds and his heart goes out to them. Instead of seeing them as a nuisance, or like there's this need, Jesus sees them, he has compassion on them, and his heart goes out to them, but the disciples saw the crowds, and what do they want to do? They wanted them to leave. Like, look at the contrast there. Jesus sees them, has compassion, the disciples see them, and want them to leave. <laughs> like, don't bother us, go find food. And maybe I'm being kind of hard on the disciples, but who among us would not do the same? Their solution actually seems totally rational, right? They see an issue, they come up with the best way to take care of this issue, they send them away, um, let them fend for themselves, go find some food, and so again, maybe maybe it's a little harsh um, that I'm being a little harsh on them, but we often do the same exact thing. We perceive that the best way to deal with the problem is to rid ourselves of it. What's the issue in our life? Just get rid of it, as, and as quick as possible, Lord, because I don't want to have to deal with it anymore. And this kind of mindset actually marks our prayer life. Like Jesus, I have an issue, tell my issue to go away. I've been in a ton of prayer meetings where that's essentially been the prayer that gets heard again and again and again. Here's the request, remove it, Jesus. Here's another request, remove it, Jesus. I just want you to take this away from me. And so I don't know if I'm being too hard on him because it actually resonates with me and maybe it resonates with you as well. But there are times in your life when we just want Jesus to get rid of the problem. But what if the removal of a problem isn't supposed to be seen as our only option? What if that's not it? At least not always. What if we aren't to be committed to an instant removal of our problems only because the reality is that often Jesus desires to display his power through them, doesn't he? Jesus works through the problems. Anthem, what if God's desire at times isn't to take away our need but to display his glory and his grace through the need itself? What if that's God's plan? Maybe our prayers shouldn't only be tell it to go away but Jesus, your will be done. What if Jesus doesn't simply exist to give you bread at your request, in your time? Like in John's account of this story, we read that people wanted to actually take Jesus by force at this point because they got some bread, they're stoked on the miracle, they want to take Jesus by force and they want to hurry up and make Jesus king. They want to put him on the throne, it says. It says. And so they they easily just come to him, like I have this need, can you feel it, fill it? And for many of us, that's the Jesus that I think we have in mind. But what if he doesn't exist for that type of mindset? That there's something more going on, something more that we have to consider that actually takes us beyond that. And so let me double down on this first point by highlighting the second thing I want you to not see. I want us to not see our circumstances only, but consider what Jesus may actually have in mind. So what's interesting about the story is that in all four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record the story. That's not the case with a lot of stories in those four books. But these, this story is recorded in all four Gospel accounts. And when you piece these four stories together, You get this glimpse of something in Jesus that I really love. The fact that that Jesus sort of eggs on his disciples, it seems like, right? That he's like sort of giving them things that they can't handle, and it seems like he's sort of pushing them and egging them on. But specifically, one of his disciples named Philip, if you read in John chapter six, there's this conversation that takes place between Jesus and Philip in John's account of the story, and it sort of goes like this. Hey, Philip. Jesus says, hey, Philip. Philip goes, hey, Jesus. Jesus goes, Philip, there's a huge crowd coming towards us. Like, they look really hungry, and it's massive. Where should we buy bread for them, and how can they eat? And Philip's like, yeah, that is a huge crowd. Yeah, they do look really hungry. He goes, it would take 200 denarii in order to feed all of these people. A denarii, if you guys didn't know, is like one denarii is, one day's wages. So you're talking about two hundred days wages, he's saying is it's gonna take to feed this amount of people. Philip's like, We don't have that kind of money, Jesus. And Jesus is kinda like, Well, what do you think we should do? <laughs> and Philip's like, Jesus tell him to go away. <laughs> like, get rid of the problem. And that's essentially this conversation where Jesus actually takes things up another level, like big crowds, lots of hunger. And what do we have? Do we have much? No, we don't really have anything at all. But here's the thing that I love about Jesus in this back and forth exchange with Philip is we get this sort of insider scoop from John. And he says this about Jesus in this back and forth conversation. He says, Jesus himself knew what he would do. It's like he's egging him on, but he knows how it ends. (laughs) Like he still knows exactly what he's gonna do. And I love this. You see, What Jesus is doing with Philip and the rest of the disciples is asking them, what do you see? What do you see? What are the circumstances surrounding us? And their answer is, we see crowds, we see hunger, we see very little food, we see a lack of cash. But Anthem, my question for us this morning is, what is it that we aren't seeing? What are they not seeing? They weren't seeing Jesus in the midst of this problem, were they? They were seeing the problem, but not Jesus in the midst of it. What weren't they asking? They weren't asking Jesus, Jesus, what do you have in mind? What's your plan in this, Jesus? And you see, make no mistake, like their assessment of the situation is good. It's understandable. They're wanting to send people away, which is understandable. They don't have the means, the ability to feed those masses. But in the midst of this, they're actually forgetting Jesus. Like they weren't seeing Jesus, they were only seeing the circumstances and they're actually being led by the circumstances themselves. They weren't considering what it was that Jesus had in mind. And so the application coming out of this is really obvious. As you're considering your life, what's the biggest issue in your life right now? What's the massive circumstance? I don't want you to shout it out, right? Like nobody needs to know your problems. But as you consider your life, what's the big circumstance and the big issue in your life right now? What, what are the circumstances surrounding that problem? And most of us say things like this. I don't have this. I'm, I'm short on this. I'm a little lonely here. I could use a different job. My boss isn't cutting it for me. My marriage is struggling. My kids are doing whatever it is that they're doing. But what are the circumstances surrounding that issue in your life? And let me ask you a follow-up to that. Are you seeing Jesus too? Is it just the circumstance, or is he there with you in the midst of it? Or is it just the issues, or are you being guided by your circumstances in your life to the exclusion of what Jesus may have for you in this time? We fall prey to being led by our circumstances all the time, and we fail to say, Jesus, you're actually in this with me. What is it you would have me do next? Instead, we go, it's a lot of people. It would cost a lot of money. I don't think it's possible. Jesus, can you just get rid of the problem? And Jesus goes, it's not that easy. I'm actually in it with you. Sometimes you gotta walk it out. Sometimes Jesus has a better way, and you need to listen to what his way is. And so I'm simply asking these questions because I know there are times where God may have something else in mind that really throws all rationality and common sense out of the window, it just doesn't make sense. Because rationality and common sense said, send them away, and Jesus responded, no, let's feed them. Like, it didn't make sense. They weren't able to rationalize that. And so before he feeds them, here's this third thing I want you to see. I I want us not to see our lack, but, what we can give instead of seeing our lack. What is it that you have? Don't focus on the lack, what do you have? So if we piece, again if we piece together the gospel accounts, we read that Jesus sends the disciples out to see what food can be collected by the crowd and what happens? There's, right, we, we discover that there's this little boy who's brought this lunch that has five loaves and two fish and they report back to Jesus, we found this little dude with a sack lunch. You know, he's got five loaves and he's got two fish. And did did you notice how they tell Jesus what they found? Look at verse 17. They said to Jesus, we have only five loaves here and two fish. I mean, what a, think about perspective here. This is all we got. We only have this. And it would be kind of funny if it didn't sadly mirror how often we respond in light of the needs around us. Like We say things like, what difference can I make? Look at what little I have. I don't have as much as that guy over there for sure, so I can't give that much. Like I, I only have this much to give. Does this resonate with any of you? Because I found myself sitting there studying this week, thinking about all the stuff going on in my life and realizing, oh man, like I am so guilty of sitting back and going, I can't do that because I don't have this. I can't do this because I don't have that. Instead of acknowledging, what do you have? I mean, the reality is, there's five loaves and two fish there, right? Instead of saying, Jesus, we've got this, what do you think we can do with this? Instead, they're going like, this is all we got. It's this perspective shift. And we often look at the needs around us and we wonder, like, what am I bringing to this? And here's the sad reality is that responses like this don't only make even less of what we do have but they make very little of Jesus. They don't put anything on him to have to show up and provide. Like, what is he capable of? Anthem, do you know what's worse than giving five loaves and two fish to a group of 15,000? Not giving anything at all. And often that's the the road we take. I just won't give anything because I don't have enough to give. I understand that it's easy to, to focus on what we don't have. We can spend years focusing on the lack, missing out on offering what's actually been placed right in our hands. And so I think this is a principle coming out of this passage. I think this is what we're not to see. We're not to look at our lack, but we're to look at what we can give instead. And so that's sort of the principle. See the need and bring what you can. You can't bring what you don't have, right? But you don't but don't allow that to keep you from bringing what you do have, and so there's the principle. But there's more to this that we can see. So here's a couple questions to chew on. As I read read through this, these are the questions I ask myself. Have you ever wondered why Jesus sends the disciples out to the crowds in the first place? Like, why does Jesus do that? Especially when he knows what's gonna happen all along. Like, why in the world? Another question, why does Jesus say, you give them something to eat, when ultimately he was the one who had to feed them? (laughs) Another question, why does Jesus call them to something that he knew full well they didn't have the resources for? That's a really important question. And lastly, why were there leftovers? And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking like why does Jesus involve the disciples the way he does in the story if it seems like There's no point. (laughs) And what I want you to think about this morning is two things. Is that one, Jesus is in the business of teaching them something. They had to be there to learn from this. And the same goes for you and I. He's in the business of teaching us through these circumstances in our life. He doesn't need you, he wants you. The other thing is that Jesus likes to partner with us. I mean that is, sometimes when I was traveling, on the road a lot with skateboarders. I would sometimes like show up at these events and kids would respond and they would come to Jesus and you would sit there and go like, what right do I have to play a role in kingdom work that God's doing? Like that just doesn't make sense. That he's using me, like this weak, (laughs) this person that's fallible, like how in the world do I have the right to be part of that? And the, the amazing part of this is that he likes you. He wants you to be a part of the story. Like you have the blessing to be used by him. He he uses us because he likes to, not because he has to. And it gives God pleasure to work through his creation. How amazing is that, that we partner with him in this work. He partners with his children. He moves through us. He wills and he works in us and through us. It goes on to say this in verse 18. And he said to them, he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So Jesus looks to heaven and what does he do? He takes what's there, and what does he do? He looks to heaven, and he blesses. He says this blessing. And I think that part is so crazy, because I often think, how many of us in this room who have very little in whatever aspect of our life it is actually take the little we have and go before the Lord and say, Jesus, will you take the little that I have? And I'm not talking financial, you guys. I'm talking like some of you, you're praying that you could have compassion and love and grace for other people. And you're like, I'm worn out. I'm emotionally strung out. My job has me going through the ringer. My family's got me going through, like whatever it is in your life, there are often times that we hit a wall and we say, I don't have enough to do X. And yet, the model here that I think Jesus is presenting to us is that it's not us that does the work. Like, the blessing in it is that we go before him and say, this is all I got. (laughs) Would you bless it, Jesus, and would you use it for for your purposes, like for your will, your will be done. And the other part of this that I think is amazing is this whole idea of abundance. Like, the blessing of God actually means more than enough. It means abundance. It means overflow. It means leftovers. that is our Jesus. And so Jesus says, give me this. He says, I'll take it, God will bless it, and I'll give you back more than enough. Again, this is not financial. This is just Jesus pours himself out upon you, gives you more than enough, more than you deserve, so that your life can be a blessing to others. Jesus is so amazing that he takes our sack lunch and he multiplies it for his glory, doesn't he? He takes the little thing that we've got, we're like, ah, Jesus, all I got is a few loaves and some fish, and he multiplies it for his glory. The last thing I want you to see is this. i want the worship team to come up. I want you to not see what Jesus did only, but I want you to see how Jesus is being revealed through the story, and this is sort of the clincher on the whole thing. You can derive all kinds of applications from this passage. Like, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this thing preached a thousand different directions. You can take what you want out of it and do what you want. But at the end of the day, here's the clincher in this whole thing. Um, Jesus is revealing himself through this whole story. And he's revealing a handful of things. One, that he's the one that blesses we have what we have. He's the one that does the work that he's the one who gives in abundance, that he uses what we have. He goes that he is actually the bread, that we're actually only satisfied by him, that we're not satisfied spiritually unless we're satisfied by Jesus. And the interesting thing about this whole passage is that it sort of parallels the Exodus story, right? The Israelites being brought out of Egypt, and Jesus is sort of revealing to us through the story a new exodus to you and I. The, this whole story reminds the people of the first exodus, but it's the this, this second exodus with Jesus, the better Moses, freeing us from this greater enemy, leading us to this eternal promised land, and then along the way and forevermore offering us this far tastier meal than we can find anywhere else, Right? And what's the meal that Jesus is offering us? He is the bread of life. In John's account, with this same passage, it's followed by this. In John 6, verse 30, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And listen to this. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And now listen to Jesus' response. Jesus says to them, what are they asking for? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. He gave them bread to eat from heaven. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Like, of course, he'd be like, give me some of that. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what is Jesus revealing to us in this passage? There's something in Jesus that's pulling you out, rescuing you out, bringing you out of darkness and despair, setting you free from the grip of the enemy. There's something about eternal life and him being the bread of life that actually frees us from the bondage that we were once in. You see, we live in a world that is reaching for things to sustain them all over the place. And I've personally felt this in the last couple of weeks. We've been remodeling our house. We've got church stuff going on. We've got the, the building stuff going on and family stuff going on. And sometimes you just go, man, it seems like I'm looking at all these circumstances and these things that I've gone on and I'm hoping that if these tabs get closed and this could fall through and that could happen and that could happen, that I could feel at peace and rest in my soul. And what you realize is that the only peace and rest you're ever gonna feel deep down within your soul is not gonna be filled when you close that tab and finish the work on your house. It's not gonna be filled when the job is done or your marriage gets fixed. It's not gonna be filled once that relationship is fixed in your life. It's not. None of that matters in light of the fact that Jesus is present in the midst of it all. Jesus was there with them. Jesus is part of distributing the bread, fish, and watching this whole thing go down through his disciples. I mean, the craziest part of the story, right, is that we were joking in sermon group this week that Jesus is just sort of like this bread machine, you know, like he's like whoosh, 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 whoosh. But if you read the story, what's actually happening is Jesus is going to the disciples and going, you do it. You, you take the bread to them. And so the couple things I wanna leave you with this morning is one, church. Do you want the bread that Jesus is offering? Not to fill your stomach, but to fill your soul. Do you want that bread? Do you acknowledge that nothing else can truly fill you except him? And the second thing this morning, is, it's interesting in the communion account because Jesus says do this in remembrance of me, right? We do communion in order to remember what he did. And the interesting thing is you take that with you and you realize Um, actually, the life of Jesus is manifest through me. And as you leave these doors, it's not just that the bread of life is given to you to sustain you, but he's actually handed you some loaves and some fish and he said, why don't you go out and share with the world what the actual answer is. Because every single one of you in this room works with somebody, has somebody in your family, a friend, somebody that's reaching for something, trying to find happiness, contentment, trying to be satiated somehow, some way in their life. They're reaching and looking for it, only to find out that they're left high and dry. And what we realize is that all those things in life are for naught if we haven't first come to Jesus to draw from Him. That's the offer for you this morning. It's that simple. Is he the bread? Will you partake? If he's the bread and you're gonna partake, will you go share? That's the work that he's called you into this morning, church. Would you stand with me? As we take some time to worship this morning, I wanna remind us that worship is not Christian karaoke. It's not a box we check. We do not come here every week to just sing because that's what they do at church. Worship is in response to God's word. It's in response to the moving of the Spirit. Like, if He is who He said He is, then He deserves all the glory and the honor and the praise in our life. Like, my mouth can't even sing enough. My the breath in me can't sing loud enough to give Him the praise that He deserves. And so, the little bit I have to offer this morning is what I'll bring to Him. Right? Like, I walk in here sometimes on a Sunday morning and feel so strung out for my week not in a bad way but like tired and um you walk in and like i I enter to worship and sometimes i just feel like this breath of fresh air like jesus literally wash over me lord but take what i have and may it be a pleasing sacrifice for you it's little it's it's my little sack lunch but it's what i got and jesus i want you to have it all And, and we have this opportunity to not just sing platitudes to his name he doesn't need your platitudes What he needs is your life like he wants the glory and the honor for what it is he's given you that he's sustained you by being the bread of life and that he hasn't just sustained you he's actually given you an abundance of bread to eat from more than enough more than enough love more than enough grace more than enough faith like he's continued to abound his love upon you over and over again. And so as we sing worship this morning, it's really in response to the fact that we should be pretty stoked about that, shouldn't we? We got something to say and sing, not just to do lip service to Jesus, but because he deserves it all. This is a little bit that we can give back to him and worship him this morning. And so as you sing, as you respond this morning to the word of the Lord. I challenge you also to dig deep into your soul because there's some of you in this room that have been feasting on every little trivial thing in your life all around Jesus and you have yet to just turn to him and say, I'm done with all those other things because they leave me high and dry every time. I want Jesus. And until you get to that point difficult part about this is you will have a tired, worn out life that feels like it's always unsustainable that always leaves you high and dry and hurt and emotionally wrecked because you aren't drawing from the real bread you're drawing from your circumstances as we worship this morning some of you in this room just need to turn your hearts and your eyes to Jesus and draw from him He's here and he's beckoning beckoning you towards him this morning. He wants to give himself to you, but you've got to let him in. So let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you uh, for the bread that you give us that sustains us. God, I'm thankful that in the midst of some crazy days, God, that there's been times when I can just kind of back up and acknowledge that I'm allowing the circumstances of my life to lead me and guide me versus turning to you who's standing with me in them. And Jesus, there's some of us in in the room this morning that are in that scenario in our lives right now. And I'm praying, Jesus, that you would give them the strength this morning, the faith this morning to turn their hearts to you, to accept you as their Lord and Savior, to acknowledge that only you, can provide for them, what it is they're looking for, that they've been reaching for and searching for, it's found in you, Jesus. And so when you meet him in this place, we thank you for your death on the cross and your resurrection, Lord, that your death pinned our sins to the cross and we were forgiven as far as the east is from the west but your resurrection breathed new life into us, Jesus. And so we are not the same creatures, Lord, we're not the same creation. We walk in the newness of life as a result of the resurrection power of Jesus that lives within us. Would you fill us this morning by your Holy Spirit that we could be a radiant church that just exudes the glory of Jesus, the joy of Jesus, the peace and the rest of Jesus everywhere we go in Jesus' name, amen.